Revelation, and we've been going through all of it. And I had intended to preach this message a number of weeks ago, but then I got my leg infection. Womp womp. So here we go. I'm going to, by way of review, I'm going to start back in chapter 20, even though we're going to be looking specifically today at verses 7 to 10 and kind of doom of Satan and the end of evil. I do want to back it up and just review because we haven't been in Revelation for a number of weeks now. So Revelation chapter 20, this is coming at the tail end of Revelation, uh, trumpets and signs and different wonders and portents and prophecies, and we've been looking at different views of how to understand these things. But as Revelation draws to a close, there's actually more and more unity across different Orthodox Christian views around the big themes of what is happening. And what we're seeing in verses um, 18 and 19 and 20 is evil in its different manifestations being judged. Political evil, uh, evil that is cloaked in religious deception, and now we get right to the source of the destruction of evil, which is Satan himself. But let's start with verse 1 in chapter 20. John says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in its hand a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, and he locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he, the devil, must be set free for a short time. And I saw thrones on which were seated those who had given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. They had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. The second death has no power over these people, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, by way of review, really quickly, we're reading here about this uh, millennial reign where Satan is bound and Jesus and the church reign. And there's essentially three views on when that happens and what does it look like. So the first view which offers the most amount of detail regarding when and what it looks like is the premillennial view. So this is the view that Jesus, after a period of seven years called the Great Tribulation, will return and he will establish the start of the millennium. Satan will be bound, removed from influence on the earth. And then those who are living on the earth will experience a millennial reign of Christ, which will be a thousand years. The second view is the post-millennial view. This is the view that says there is going to be a millennium, but the entire millennium is going to happen before Jesus comes back. Like the end of the millennium is when Jesus kind of comes back and kind of puts the capstone on. And what the millennium is, it's this time in history, maybe that little arrow is where we are, but it's a time in the future where the spread of the gospel is going to be so pervasive and so effective that while not every nation and every single person in a census kind of way is a devoted disciple of Jesus, the vast majority of the world is. And we'll 
will experience as close as you can get to a utopia on this side of heaven. Sin will still be active in the world, so it's not going to be a perfect state, but it will be an amazing long, maybe not exactly a thousand years, maybe it's going to be symbolic, but it's going to be a long era of pronounced Christian blessing and influence that doesn't just touch like parts of the globe or certain um, neighborhoods and nations, but covers, in a sense, the whole world. Then Jesus is going to come. And the third view is the uh, amillennial view, which says the millennium is what we're living in right now. That it's, a, it's symbolically portraying the reign of the church in heaven. Often in the New Testament, the church, or, or Paul, you, Paul and other New Testament writers use the language that you now reign with Christ, like you're actively reigning. And so when Jesus was resurrected and ascended and sat at the right hand of God and is installed as Lord of heaven and on earth, the millennium began. And it's now going for 2,000 years because the millennium of a thousand years is just understood by amillennials to be symbolic. And then what's going to happen is a second coming of Jesus is going to happen and that's where we pick up verses 7 to 10. So the millennium is a period of time some believe that lies in the future, some believe we're in now, but where everyone agrees is what we're going to read in seven to uh, verses 7 to 10, which is at the... Um, uh, at the end of that millennium, Satan is released. So verses 7. When the thousand years are over, so when this millennium comes to an end, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. And in number, those forces are like the sand on the seashore, and they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the prophet had been thrown. And they, the three of them, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what we're seeing here in verses 7 to 10 is the end of evil. It's the definitive final judgment against all kind of like the, the, the ground source of the deception that facilitates evil. Now, again, whether you're post-millennial, pre-millennial, amillennial, all the views agree at the high level of what is happening here, which is that Satan is being judged and condemned to hell, evil, is being eliminated from God's creation. Where the disagreement is over is what's the precise timing and mechanism of how that happens? The premillennial approach, this is the approach of the seven-year tribulation, Jesus comes, sets up the millennium. After the millennium, Satan is released for a period. This is the most detailed explanation. And so in this view, um, th this, this uh, throwback to this language of Gog and Magog, these nations to the north of Israel, that Revelation is using these prophecies about uh, Magog that come out of Ezekiel 38 to portray an end times battle that is going to happen, uh, often referred to as the Battle of Armageddon, which we heard about earlier in the book of Revelation. And it's an end times attack on Jerusalem and on the nation of Israel. And the nations 
have been, uh, hang on, what am I doing here in my notes? Um, so the nations had been subdued when Jesus returned for that thousand years. But when Satan's released, the inference is we kind of have a Garden of Eden part two where people are living in, in more or less a paradise, but Satan says there's a better way. If we overthrew God and like one final last ditch attempt to do it, we could like, we could usher in something so much better. Jesus is oppressing you. This is actually oppressive. Follow me into freedom. Satan's defeated, judged, thrown into hell. And then the great white throne judgment follows with the resurrection. We'll talk about that next week. The post-millennial approach that says there's going to be a millennium that we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to usher in. Then Jesus comes. That right before Jesus comes, Satan's going to be loosed. That the world's going to be like massively influenced, not by cultural Christianity, but by real conversions of the heart. But then, again, Satan's going to tempt people away or there's going to be a critical mass of people who join Satan in rebelling. And there's going to be some kind of battle and war raged. Then resurrection and the great white throne judgment is going to follow. And then the amillennial approach, again, says we're in the millennium, we're in the church age, and right before Jesus comes back, Satan will be loosed, not that he's not active in the world now, but he's going to be given a greater scope to deceive those who are um, either Christians and or those who are unbelievers. And amillennialists both... Um, point to kind of a cryptic passage in 2 Thessalonians about a man of lawlessness where it says, now, he's writing to the church, he says, now you know what is holding him back, this man of lawlessness, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then it goes on to talk about how this lawless one is going to work in concert with Satan and through the displays of power and signs and even miracles, he's going to draw people away from God. He's going to deceive the nations. Um, those people who no normally would have leaned in the direction of like, yeah, I'm trusting God. They're going to say, ooh, I don't know. Yeah, I think there's a better offer over here. Um, it says, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So amillennialists say the millennium is happening, but right before Jesus returns, there is going to be this dark period where whatever restraining force is being brought to bear in certain circles of the world or in certain people's hearts by the Holy Spirit or by God's power in a different way, that's going to be removed. And then those people, those forces are going to be allowed to move forward completely unhindered. So again, all of the views kind of line up with uh, before Jesus returns, um, well, I guess not, but before there's a final judgment and final resurrection, there's going to be this time of tremendous deception where Satan leads people away from God and then is ultimately going to be judged. Here's where all the views agree. And they also agree across the board that when this passage talks about fire coming down out of heaven, we shouldn't actually picture like, you know, asteroid comets coming down out of heaven. 
everyone says, oh, this is a throwback to Old Testament imagery and New Testament imagery that when the Son of God comes, it will be revealed with fire. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubling you and to us as well. And he says, this will happen in the future when Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire and with his powerful angels. Jesus will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this fire coming down, this victorious supernatural event that thwarts Satan's attempted overthrow, this final battle, as it were, is Jesus' coming and destroying the forces of evil, not with literal fire, with the sword coming out of his mouth as an actual sword, but simply through his commands, his power, right? I mean, this is the same God who says, let there be light. Bam, there's light. And now it's like, now evil is done, and evil is done. You know, Satan is judged. Satan is judged. There's not like, oh, there was like volleys over here, and then Satan's army's got some casualties. They did like a counter volley, and like, oh, and they had tanks. and That's not what's going on here. Satan's army marshaled against God. God comes, battle's over. It's done. That's what we're supposed to see here. Which leads into the next point, which is that Satan and his purposes are going to be thoroughly defeated. In Isaiah 27, there's a prophecy that says, In the day of the Lord, through his hard and great and strong sword, he will punish Leviathan, the great serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Yahweh will not just hold evil at bay forever, he will subdue it and destroy it and eliminate it on the day of his coming. And then all views agree that the resurrection and the great white throne judgment will follow. Okay, so let's talk about sort of like the so what, because this is um, a passage that it might not occur to us exactly how we're supposed to hold on to this, apply it, connect it relevantly to our lives. The first thing that I want you to see, in a, and I think it might be hidden in plain sight for, for many Christians, is you know, don't miss the forest for the trees, which is in these uh, four verses, 7 to 10, Revelation shows us definitively, in symbolic form, but it's making it very clear, that evil has an expiry date. Evil is coming to an end. Evil is not forever. And for that alone, we should all say, like, praise God. Because many religious worldviews do not hold that tenet. Many world philosophies do not hold that tenet. They do not have that assurance. Um the best that we get from, let's say, a thoroughly materialistic, secular view of the world is that life's going to go on, good and bad things happen, probably more suffering than more joy and goodness. Eventually, there's going to be heat death of the universe and non-existence. That's like the, that's the arc of materialistic secularism. And then you have other um, worldviews like Hinduism or Buddhism that sees suffering and evil in some sense, as inevitable and inescapable. And yet, the revelation from God says, no, evil is not a feature of creation. It's a bug. So it needs to be fixed. It needs to be eliminated. And it will be eliminated. That's the good news of a Christian worldview. They're actually, only, only a Christian, and you can push back if you want. I, I invite you to try. 
only a Christian can say as it relates to everything, there will absolutely be a happy ending. No one else can give you that assurance. They can shoot their mouth off and use those words. There's no actual ground for it. It's wishful thinking. Only a Christian can say there's a ground and a revelation and an assurance that the story ends with something glorious, a new beginning, a new beginning where deeper joy, deeper pleasure, deeper glory awaits those who have aligned themselves with God and his purposes. And the reason why that's relevant to you is because if you know that evil is not a feature of creation, if it's a bug, and if you know that God is active against evil and against the forces of evil, and he will bring it to an end, that does help you gain a certain resolve now when you will encounter suffering and evil now, right? I mean, if you honestly thought that the suffering, the abuse, the mistreatment, the lost opportunities, the grief, all of it, if, that's, if what you experienced, that that's just going to sort of cycle on and 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 that's it. And the most you could hope for is just non-existence. Like, that is, I understand why, why people would be driven to, you know, to suicidal thinking. But if God is bringing an end to evil because he's the author of life and he's the only one who can take what was meant for evil and bend it on an arc towards that which is good, then that means when I'm going through something difficult and hard, I don't have to deny that it's difficult. I don't have to deny that it's hard. I don't have to try and paper over it by saying like, oh, well, one day God will make it good and I'll just kind of numb myself out. I can experience grief. I can go to God and say, God, why are you doing this or why are you allowing this to happen or why aren't you rescuing me right away? I'm angry, I'm confused. We can still grapple with God, but we can know underneath all of it that evil has an expiry date. Our suffering has an expiry date. And that makes a difference in your everyday life. Even right now, if, 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 the, if the worst parts of the pandemic were static and we're going to stay like this for the next 50 years, as a Christian, that would still affect you. But it shouldn't crush you because you understand the, these, this is just a temporary suffering. It might be a long one, but it's still temporary. And I have an eternity to look forward to. But our promise is even better than that. It's not just suck it up for this life and then you get eternity. It's even in the midst of suffering, you're still going to experience God breaking in in grace-filled, powerful, awesome ways, even during times of deep distress and, and grief. And then think about how verses 7 to 10 would have been received by those to whom it was first given, people who are facing themselves, being tortured, killed, like really aggressively persecuted, seeing family members have to go through that, seeing people that they prayed with on Sunday not show up next Sunday because they were beheaded in the week preceding, and you're praising God for their life, but also crying at the same time because you're like, I know God's my protector and my redeemer, and I know he was their redeemer too, and they're with him, but like, man, this is brutal. And maybe I'm next this week, but they're still singing and they're still praising and they're still reaching out and they're still telling other people about Jesus. 
Think about what this vision would have meant to them to say Satan doesn't win in the end. So even if you're tempted on this side of heaven to look and say, I know it's not true, but it feels true. Like it feels like evil is going to win. It feels like evil is winning. You come back to Revelation 20 and 7 to 10 and you say, no, God has set aside a day where he will judge evil. Satan is doomed. He will make one final attempt and then he will be condemned and tortured and punished forever. And so our response to that, I hope part of your response as a Christian is just to read a passage like this and to say, praise God. Like, praise God. Like, if that's all your, that was the only application <laughs> you had this week. This just came to mind a few times. You're like, yeah, like, the story has a happy ending. It doesn't end with darkness. It doesn't end in nothingness. It doesn't end with evil. It doesn't just continue on forever and ever and ever and ever with just this cosmic battle of good and evil. God wins, love wins, grace wins, Jesus wins. Praise God. But that should also prompt us to ask ourselves, like as history moves forward, as we're going towards this final judgment, like whose side are we on? Like are we actually on the Lord's side? I'm going to date myself. Do you guys remember that Petra song, Who's on the Lord's Side from the 80s and 90s? I probably listened to that a hundred times as a teenager. It's a really cheesy, lame song. But it's also kind of awesome. And it got me pumped up. I'm like, I'm on the Lord's side. Like, I, no matter how hard life is, no matter how inconvenient it is to be a Christian, no matter how much I have to suffer, I'm going to stick with Jesus. And I just sang that song enough that it got into my bones. And I understand the symbology might trouble some of us, but Revelation does ultimately depict two armies, two destinies, two paths. You're a part of Satan's army, maybe not actively, like I'm worshiping Satan, but you're a part of the deception and those who are saying like, I'll do what seems right in my own eyes. Thanks God, but no thanks. Maybe I'll take some stuff under advisement, but I'm not going to yield to you. I'm not going to like install you as my master and commander and king. I'm going to go my own way. That's really the satanic way. Do your own thing. Or are you going to be part of like Jesus's army, like the salvation army, where you say, my commander is Jesus. And I might get an order one day to go into battle and I might not be coming out of that battle on the side of heaven. And I'm going to go into battle with grace and love and I might get beheaded, I might get persecuted, I might get cut off, I might get alienated, I might get isolated. And I'll pour out my heart to God and I'll cry tears and I'll lament what's happening to me, but I'll also keep singing. I'll also keep praying. I'll also keep encouraging the Christians around me, whether it's just me and another Christian in prison or whether it's praying with someone in the cancer ward. I'm going to keep singing and I'm going to hold on to that truth, that evil is coming to an end. Satan is doomed. The forces of evil are doomed. Victory is secured. Revelation 7, 27 to 10 shows us that the war has been won. And so now we can go into our own battles in our own lives 
not with some pie-in-the-sky hope that Jesus is just going to make everything magical and make it, make it all better, make it all easy, but we can go fortified in our spirit that he's with us, that as we work against evil and overcome evil with good, he's empowering us by his spirit, and no matter how our story this side of heaven ends, it's connected to the largest redemption arc that's possible, the one established by Jesus himself that is good news and real hope. Let me invite you to stand and send you off with a benediction.